Men must endure their going hence, even as their coming hither. Ripeness is all. William Shakespeare. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me this week. Um, would like to go ahead and start off and apologize for the delay in getting last week's episode out. Uh, meant to get out a little bit earlier, had some technical issues, um, and I, you know, just in general was a little bit slower than I would have liked after I got back from uh, my travels for the Labor Day week, uh, weekend, excuse me. So, uh, this episode should be out at the regular time, and next week's, of course, will continue as normal. Uh, but did have a uh, notification, of course, that we will be doing our kind of our October seasonal kind of uh, fantasy horror sci-fi episodes. Um, so if you have any suggestions or um, things you would like me to talk about, uh, maybe do an episode on, please let me know. Um, you can reach me uh, via my email or Twitter, or uh, you can comment on any of my YouTube stuff. So um, just be thinking about that. We still have a couple of weeks before... Um, before I will need any suggestions, I already know what I'm going to do for my first episode in October, so uh, please look forward to that. However, this week, uh, we will be going ahead and returning to our history episodes after uh, we did my little bonus episode last week with my review of Far Cry Primal. Uh, we're going to be going and kind of following along in the theme of that show uh, to talking about the history of Europe between 8,000 and 6,000 BC, BCE, whichever you prefer. Now, last season when we talked about Europe, we talked about a number of regional tool assembles, uh, assemblages, cultures, and how you know there were lo two large primary groups of humans living in Europe until that point in time, the Western hunter-gatherers and the Eastern hunter-gatherers, as they're referred to, or Western European and Eastern European hunter-gatherers is another way. So, by and large, these tool assemblages, uh, of course, were um, either strictly Western or Eastern hunter-gatherers, and then you had some that were probably a mix of some interbreeding between the two groups. And I'm sure some small groups, you know, became fairly isolated from each of those. And they'll, of course, um, be people we talk about going forward. Um, some with a lot more Eastern or Western hunter-gatherer DNA uh, without the incoming migrants that we'll get to, uh, at least at the very end of this episode. Um... <clears throat> though most of the isolated groups are going to stay in the west uh for the for this period uh there will also be some in the extreme north but that's kind of later and that might be kind of a separate group that we'll need to talk about uh but all that in good time uh but we did mention about how different the environment in europe was due to the younger dryas and all of this needs to be kept in mind while I do my best to explain things you um, 
some things you might actually want to go back and listen to that prior episode or episodes on Europe, but um, I'll I'll do my best to kind of go back and talk about some stuff I've already referred to in that earlier episode because it's all still playing a very important role in the lives of the humans living in Europe at this time. Now we're going to begin with the peoples in the eastern bit of the continent, uh, both north and south. In the north, this means what are the modern countries of Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Baltics, of course, parts of Poland. Um, And for the south, that means, you know, Balkans, Greece, um, uh, Romania, Moldova, those kind of areas. Black Sea Coast, really. Now, uh, Greece and the Balkans were being occupied uh, by... um, hunter-gatherer groups that were using tools that are usually linked to what is known as the Epigravedian culture. Uh, This is a designation used to describe sites that are all over Italy, uh, the coast of the Adriatic, um, the Balkans, Greece, and again, parts of the Black Sea coast. I don't know why I can't say that word today. Epigravedian is a, a debated term as well, uh, but generally it is used to describe peoples who were continuing to make tools and artifacts that have a high degree of similarity with the Gravedian tool culture. While other European groups were beginning to develop a different style and tool designs. Uh, and if you're Again, if you haven't gone back to listen to my prior episode, the Gravedian kind of encompassed all of Europe at one point. Uh, whereas in the West and kind of like um, Central Europe, you see uh, some other tool, culture, uh, tool, cur- uh, tool cultures emerge. Excuse me, I don't know why I can't speak today. Um, the Epigravedian in Italy and the places I, I mentioned um kind of continue as is. And I'm I'm willing to bet, and I think it's, you know, one of the major, you know, popular theories, is that these groups were probably driven by environmental factors caused by the younger Dryas. And um the more temperate climate uh that arose afterward also causes an evolution in these tool cultures. Um, the peoples of the Epigravedian living south of the worst climate shifts probably didn't feel nearly as much pressure to change their tools or lifestyles and were able to maintain their more, I guess, traditional European lifestyle. Now, of course, that's not to say that they're not changing anything. They're constantly refining the process they use for creating all their tools. Uh, and their clothing and artifacts, etc. And of course, um, their their art and design choices for said items are changing as well. But they're not being forced to make these changes, at least not as rapidly as the other parts of Europe that have, you know, weathered this brutal, uh, almost ice age conditions of the Younger Dryas. And of course, the changes that are happening in Europe after that period ends. 
However, after the Younger Dryas ends and it slowly starts to become easier for travel through Europe, we do see the Epigravedian tool numbers begin to disappear or drop and old sites become abandoned or they become smaller or much less used. Um, why this is happening is hard to say, though I, I think it should point out that this happens later in some areas than others. But by and large, the Epigravedian is dying out or even dead right at the start of this season. They're replaced in Greece and the Balkans by a number of smaller regional cultures. And these cultures, um, they carry a lot of similarities in terms of their tools. However, you can see that they're beginning to rely on different resources uh, to, uh, to survive uh, in terms of food sources. Um, they are possibly beginning their own kind of animal domestication. Um, maybe uh, trying to domesticate goats or maybe even cows on their own. Now, how far they get in that process is debated, uh, but most people think they never complete it fully uh, before um, other events take place. But there are a couple of places in this region I kind of want to talk about. Uh, the first of these is in Greece, and that site is known as Sheshklu or Sheshklio, depending on the exact pronunciation. My Greek again is a little foggy. Uh, and I think depending on the dialect, there's either like an E sound or just a kind of a hard H sound. Ah, so um, now uh, Sheshklu is a site that lasts for quite a while. Uh, at least at its early stages, uh, you can tell that there's continuous habitation starting around 7500 BC, uh, BCE. Uh, so this is, you know, about 500 years after kind of the Epigravedian sites either disappear or uh, just contract to such small numbers that they, they barely count. Um, so, you know, you probably have people who were somewhat related to the Epi Epigravedian. Uh, and then... You know, you might have a group that decides to try a different way of life due to uh, a number of reasons, but probably the, the climate. Uh, south, again, southern Europe, uh, specifically Italy and Greece, did not see you know, nearly the level of uh, you know, uh, cold that the uh, places further north did. Uh, but with those places getting warmer, uh, Italy and Greece are probably a lot closer to what they are now so i mean you've seen the picturesque uh, islands and all that kind of stuff like it it's a beautiful place to live when when the weather is nice at least uh and you have access to all this fresh seafood and um you know all this other stuff so it, it was probably a very nice place to live you know provided you didn't have to deal with too many earthquakes or things like that uh it's certainly uh, the climate is not nearly the concern it is further north, so that probably made things a lot easier as well. But I'm, I'm trailing, uh, getting distracted. So, uh, kind of the proto Shesklo site pops up around 7,500. Uh, it's fairly straightforward. Um, they appear to be 
beginning their own Neolithic period. Uh, you can see more tools kind of following again the blades that are uh, longer than they are wider, uh, you know, sharper. Uh, they're using flint, you know, that's pretty standard. I think they also have some obsidian. Uh, so that means they're trading with some people from like the islands to the south, maybe, or towards uh, maybe the Peloponnese. Um, but uh, sh uh, glow lasts quite a while. It will last until uh, at least I think the mid four thousands. Uh, I think that that's continually occupied uh, before the site is abandoned for a time, uh, and it, it may have been like reoccupied by some later groups, but um. There's a very big period between uh, when it's abandoned from this Neolithic period to when it's maybe re rehabitated during the um, during the Archaic periods uh, that follow. Excuse me. Uh, now Sheshglo is in modern. Um, I think it's uh, Thessaly is the uh, name for the region now, uh, and that's a historical name as well. We'll be talking about. Uh, the Thessalians at uh, points later. Um, but, uh, you know, you see a lot of different animal bones. Uh, you see what could be uh, domesticated animals mixed in with wild animals. Though, of course, you're still probably seeing more, um, <clears throat> more um, wild animals than um, domesticated ones. If, again, they are domesticated. But Sesclo is uh, occupied year-round. Uh, it is occupied by sedentary, again, mostly hunter and gatherers. Although they they are probably uh, practicing again that kind of proto horticulture, agriculture, and maybe trying to domesticate some animals. Now, uh, after about a thousand years, however, you do begin to see a major change in this region uh, and we'll talk about that um, going forward um, excuse me um, but uh, before I get to that though there are some other smaller Neolithic sites in mainland Greece although there are not um, they're not nearly as uh, big as Sheshklo. I think Sheshklo, um, I think they have over a couple hundred people um, living there at any given time, at least at this early stage. Um, there are some others that begin to pop up around 6,900, 6,800 uh, to about 6,500. You, you see a number of smaller sites uh, pop up, and these are, these are places with people uh, between or, you know, 50 to 100. Uh, so not huge, huge locations. Um, now, that's mainland Greece. In uh, the islands, uh, there are a number of places that are beginning to be inhabited as well. Uh, the Cyclades, which are like the islands kind of in the middle between Greece and the Anatolian Peninsula and then of course to the south you have Crete which is a very important site in Greek history Greek mythology uh, all that kind of stuff and again people have been visiting Crete uh, if not living there you know permanently 
for quite a while, though again, there's no evidence for permanent habitation until right around 7000 BC. Uh, so, there is kind of a debate on like, you know, what's the oldest site in Greece to have agriculture and domestication? Uh, some say it's Sheshklo, some say it's Knossos. Uh, again, you don't really have the hard evidence for Sheshklo until around 6,000 BC, give or take. Uh, whereas at Knossos, you maybe have it as early as 7,000. Again, this is all debated. Um, and it is also debated if this is all stuff developed on site or if it's stuff that's imported. Um, starting around starting around 6,900, give or take 100 years, one way or the other, um, you begin to see evidence of migrations from the east, uh, from Anatolia. Um, this could be people living or leaving from uh, sites like Kaitelhoyok or possibly Gobekli Tepe. Uh, and that they're expanding away from those sites because of um, maybe dropping rain levels. They're not getting the kind of um, uh, precipitation they need to grow their crops. So they might be sending waves out in terms uh, or to try to find land that's better to grow, uh, to better to receive um you know, uh, water from the sky, rain, all that kind of stuff, um, and may have better access to wild sources of food. They might be trying to say, okay, well, we're growing enough, you know, we're growing a decent amount of food, but we need more, so let's send people to where, you know, it rains about the same, but they have access to fish or more types of wild animals. Uh, so that is something that is, you know, you're beginning to see these migrations from Anatolia into mainland Greece, and that is backed up by DNA evidence. Um, there is a and there is a spread of this DNA from the Anatolian farmers or early Anatolian farmers, as they're sometimes referred to, and this will begin to spread throughout most of Europe. Um, these people form like the first. I guess technically the second major wave of Homo sapiens into Europe. Uh, again, you have the the early uh, hunter gatherers into Europe, uh, that first wave that successfully uh, moved in and outcompeted the Neanderthals, and basically lived there pretty much undisturbed till after the Younger Dryas by other Homo sapiens. Uh, but then you see this first wave of Homo sapiens from Asia uh, come in. And they, they change a lot. Um, but while the people on mainland Greece are getting this wave of, or this first wave of uh, Anatolian early farmers, uh, the people living on Crete, uh, the DNA evidence seems to suggest that the people that they're interacting with are coming from Cyprus. Um, or maybe the the uh, coast of the Levant. Uh, so they're, they're coming from a different part of Asia. But we've already seen how there's a certain level of commonality in terms of 
the people in Anatolia and the Levant, how they've already been practicing at least a horticulture type of agriculture uh, since maybe is you know at this point uh, when the, they're beginning to move in Europe for almost three thousand years, maybe even longer, very probably longer. Uh, so, and of course, again, they've been doing animal domestication like that too. Uh, so, it's hard to say if these European peoples that we're focusing on between eight thousand to about seven thousand uh, were they doing this new form of life because it was something they needed to do or if it was something they had been inspired to do through environmental changes, uh, the environmental changes that uh, affected the animals. So, like, the environment may not have changed too drastically, but some of the wildlife that may be moving into or out of the region uh, may have been more affected uh, because of the changes to the north um and they may have tried to switch to kind of a proto-agriculture or domestication uh, because of those changes or were they interacting with peoples in anatolia and the levant uh, and we just don't have a record of that and they're trying their own hand at it but then you know you have these people you know about maybe you've studied some and maybe they just didn't get it you know, maybe they didn't complete their own process before these people came in with this ready-made crops uh, or animals uh, to adapt to this lifestyle. Um, now, that is not to say that they're wiped out. Again, we know that there is, you know, descent between both of these groups into the modern day. Um, there are probably more uh early agricultural strands of DNA because there were probably more of them. Um, when you commit to the sedentary lifestyle, which we'll talk about going forward uh, when I talk about my uh, urbanization episode, um, when you become sedentary and when you have steady sources of food, uh, your population tends to double quicker. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that again when we talk about urbanization uh, in that special episode. Um, but yeah, so in southern Greece, and or I'm sorry, in Greece and in the Balkans, um, you do see there are still holdouts of uh, hunter-gatherer groups, but they are sedentary, and they're sedentary right from the end of the Younger Dryas. They don't migrate the same way that... Um, they had done previously. Uh, they're, they're staying where they are. The land can support them, um, either you know, just through an abundance of crops and or animal life and marine life, um, or maybe they're moving, you know, uh, through river valleys pretty easily. There might be a lot of things that they can do um, to kind of supplement their food sources without having to move too regularly. Uh, which is not the case, uh, as we'll see, for places further north or, or west. And we'll talk about that shortly. But, uh, again, starting around 6900 BC, BCE, uh, you see ever-increasing evidence of agricultural lifestyles beginning to move into the region. More agricultural people, um, 
in terms of their DNA showing up more often in finds and digs. Um, so th they're really moving in. They're really causing a massive shift in the population in this region. And that will continue uh, going forward, although it won't really spread outside of the Balkans until our next episode, uh, or our, sorry, our next season in this region. Um, but that does take me to um, uh, the Iron Gates Mesolithic, um, excuse me, the Iron, yeah, the Iron Gates Mesolithic culture. Now, I mentioned these people last season. Uh, they had switched to a sedentary lifestyle far earlier than everyone else, um, at least in terms of hunter-gatherers uh, in Europe. Uh, and they made their home in the Danube Valley. Uh, and they, would, they had a few type sites, uh, most notably uh, Lipinski Vir is the most famous one. It's the largest one. Uh, and they would mostly stay in, like a, in these small scattering of sites. Uh, and they, there is evidence that they're trading uh, very highly with uh, these cultures that begin to move in uh, starting around uh, uh, again the 6900 7000 BC 6800 somewhere in that range they're beginning to trade with these peoples uh, in the Aegean Sea region uh, we do find some tools uh, but they, these people, never practice agriculture. We have no evidence of them, you know, having fields or anything like that. Uh, and the amount of food that they have, um, you know, that we have records of, it doesn't match up with any kind of, you know, uh, comparatively to wild or animal bone uh, or wild plants or animal uh, bones. Uh, they are almost all, almost all their food at sources that we can find evidence of is wild hunter-gather sources and fishing. Of course, fishing was a big part of it, too. In fact, um, they seem to have uh, some type of uh, ritual uh, stone artifacts depicting, like, fish men or fish deities, maybe. Um, so that they kind of had their own sort of um, religion, almost. Or at least their own kind of... Um, uh, devotional uh, uh, depictions. Um, they don't, as far as I know, have any depiction of like a female goddess, perhaps that ancient mother goddess that is worshipped maybe universally. Um, they seem to worship something else. Um, and that, you know, that could have been a reason why they stay independent and separate for so long. Um, but this culture sadly does begin to disappear right around 6000 BCE. Um, and that is due to, again, uh, they probably were maybe too successful of a hunter-gathering culture. They probably over-hunted the region uh, and maybe even overfished it, if that's possible at this early date. Uh, and then, of course, you had these ever-expanding number of Neolithic settlements where people uh, have food that's growing kind of on its own or either they're planting it and they get to supplement it. So these people may have had to abandon their sites due to these ever-increasing numbers of their former trading partners or they may have just decided the lifestyle wasn't worth it. 
Um, it's hard to say. There doesn't appear to be much violence uh, associated with these sites, at least that I've seen in the literature. That's not to say there was none. I'm sure there were. Um, but, um, yeah, um, I know that there did bury um, their people kind of like in a almost reclined position with their legs crossed. Um so it's uh, in a lot of other burials that you see at this time, you'll see people either buried on their sides, kind of curled up, or um, either also just just kind of placed on their sides straight up. Um, so they they have their own burial uh, kind of um, burial uh, style. It's different from anyone else surrounding them, at least at this point in uh, period. Also, they were very big into dogs. They, they had a lot of dog bones at their sites. Some appear to have been butchered, so they may have been keeping dogs as a food source in addition to you know all the other things you would keep a dog for, companionship, uh, aid hunting, all that kind of stuff as well. Um... So, uh, to kind of sum up Eastern Europe, what you're seeing, or uh, so- Southeastern Europe, uh, what you're seeing at this time period, you've got sedentary hunter-gatherer societies that are beginning to break away from their traditions after the end of the Younger Dryas. Uh, and, you know, they they seem to find success doing this. They're small in number, but there's a large number of these sites. However, as this is happening they're beginning to see ever-increasing influence from the East, from these Anatolian farmers. Um, now, how violent this influence is, it's hard to say. It, not, it did not necessarily have to be super violent. Uh, these people may have been relying on different um, lands, different types of lands to survive. Uh, and there was probably a good level of trade. Uh, but once... You know, these agricultural groups began to expand uh, and quite easily, comparatively quite easy, I should say, to the hunter-gatherers. Um, it's either a question of did the hunter-gatherers willingly change their lifestyle to match this with these newcomers? Did they try to violently resist and were they beaten? Or did they just leave the area and go to, you know, different places uh, to try and establish their own independent communities, uh, possibly with knowledge of agricultural and things like that. It's hard to say. Again, we know from the DNA evidence that the Anatolian hunter-gatherer DNA it, it will slowly begin to expand. Um, but, again, the hunter-gatherer DNA doesn't disappear either. Uh, so it's just a question of what is the level of integration and how fast did this integration happen? How violent was it? These are questions that are going to be debated for quite a while uh, until we find, um, you know, more, I guess, intermediate skeletons or remains to test DNA for. Or, you know, we find some large-scale battle evidence or, you know, sack settlements, things like that. Um, until we find those things, we're just going to have to debate. Now, um, to move north 
and to east, uh, you know, to the part of Europe that's uh, north of the Caucasus, uh, west of the Ural Mountains, um, you know, kind of Russia, Ukraine, Bulgaria, those places. Now, these people, there are a number of small regional sites, um, but these people are still hunter-gatherers almost completely. Um, but due to the changing climate, um, it's not so much a unbroken step. Uh, you are beginning to see a lot more trees, uh, but different types of trees than what you saw during the Younger Dryas. You've probably got conifers, younger pines, um, things like that. You're also losing your megafauna. You don't have the mammoth this far, um, this far west. That's gone. Um, reindeer are becoming harder to find. You'd have to keep moving north, uh, closer to the Arctic circles to find those. Or you know places like Finland, uh, Sampni, um, those locations. So you know you're no longer running along with uh, reindeer. Or elks, or you know, moose, or you know, these larger megafauna. You're hunting. You're hunting uh, smaller animals and smaller deers, um, red-tailed deer, things like that. Um, you're not hunting these large, you know, um, megafauna anymore. And again, that's been on the downslope for quite a while. But at this point, with the end of the younger dryas. Um, those animals are almost completely gone. They're just, they have to move to colder climates. And I'm sure that some of the Eastern hunter-gatherers made that trend. And that's what we'll see too when we get to, we talk about the Amur legacy uh, for, for uh, North Asia. Some of those people will be contributors to that. However, for the people who are remaining behind, um, you know, they are, again, they're, they're shifting their focus to these uh, smaller animals. Um, things like horses as well. Horses are very important, and they will continue to remain important. Uh, wild uh, sheeps, uh, goats, uh, or ibex uh, were probably moving up north from the Caucasus because, again, you do have this more temperate climate. Uh, it is allowing these animals from Asia to move north. And this also allows humans to move north. Now, you're not seeing too many come from Central Asia at this point. However, you are beginning to see a number of groups come up from the Caucasus. And these are people probably bringing domesticated herds of cows and sheep and things of that nature. Um, and much like the Anatolian uh, farmers, uh, these people do... Sh spread some agriculture, though not nearly as much. Uh, they're mainly uh, focused on uh, herds of animals that they're spreading uh, north and uh, to, the, to the west, back towards Europe. Uh, so basically they're coming around from the other side of the Black Sea, whereas the Anatolian uh, farmers, they're just coming straight up f from the Greece into the Balkans and then around the other side of uh, the Black Sea. And I should also point out that there may have been some more uh, substantial settlements along the Black Sea coast. However, um, there is a debate about whether or not uh, the Black Sea flooded 
during the end of the Younger Dryas. Um, you know, that there was finally a tipping point where water coming from the Mediterranean finally mixed in with this lake in the Black Sea, uh, possibly as late as 6000 BC. And this could have been a source of a number of flood myths. Um, that is a that is a possibility uh, that there were some groups, maybe from Anatolia, uh, that had already been living along the coast for a while, and that they had to, if they weren't quickly subsumed by the flooding of the Black Sea, that they may have had to uh, move back through uh, a little bit closer to the interior of Anatolia. Uh, and then you know back into Asia or maybe back into Greece. Um, this is all highly debated, but it is a you know it is one of the big things that would set off like a big flood myth like that. Um, and uh, I haven't talked about this too much recently, but um, you know most myths are based on some type of real historical event. Now again. As you retell things, you make it more dramatic. You try to make it more important to you or why things are the way they are. You you, you inflate it uh, every time you retell it. At least that seems to be the pattern. Um, and again, a number of places on Earth do have a flood myth. However, I'm not one of those people who think it was a universal flood myth. I'm one of those people that think it's a number of regional floods that happened at more or less... You know, within the same span of a couple of thousand years, um, which again would help with the retelling. It also makes it harder to pin down an exact time. You know, that would contribute to kind of the nebulousness of it in the historical record, Uh, at least when you get to terms of like uh, oral oral traditions and history. Um, But I'm I'm kind of going off on a tangent again, so I'll get back. So. in much the same way that you have the early Anatolian farmers moving into Greece, you have these Caucasian um, hunter herdsmen moving into kind of northern Europe, uh, and they they move, their DNA shows up in you know in the you know in the record, uh, and there is intermixture again between these eastern hunter-gatherers living in the area and these Caucasian uh, peoples moving in. Uh, And then again, you have examples of those two groups moving uh, into Asia as well. Um, They don't ever appear to quite outnumber the eastern Europeans the same way that Anatolian farmers do. Uh, There seems to be more of a mix, like an equal mix between those two groups. Um, And this region is very you know, it's a it's a good place for herds. Um, you've got a lot of flat land. It's easily cleared from forests. Um, you know, the steppe is a good place to grow just fodder. Uh, and you will see a number of societies arise in these great rivers, like the Don and the Volga. Um, and you know, those are going to kind of be the cornerstones of uh, human societies in this region for the next oh, couple of thousand years, uh, if not longer, uh, probably probably closer to five, maybe. Um, but uh, that's all stuff we'll focus on in the future. But yes, so 
Um, also, the uh, the Caucasian hunter gatherers don't quite move as fast as the uh, Anatolian farmers. Um, the Anatolian farmers get through to most of Europe, at least their DNA does, um, fairly quickly, uh, within a couple of thousand years. Uh, the Caucasian DNA takes a little bit longer, probably probably twice that. Um, and we'll go into those details a little bit more, of course, in future seasons. Um, but yeah, so that's what you're looking at with Eastern Europe. Um, next week, when we return, we will focus on um, Central Europe, um, North and South again. We'll talk about how uh, the climate changes from the end of the Younger Dryas has opened up uh, at least the south of Scandinavia, places like Denmark, um, has opened that up more. Um, and then, of course, we'll talk about places in Germany and Italy. Uh, and then we will follow up and talk about uh, Western Europe, Spain, France, England, those areas. Um, and then, uh, then after that, we should uh, go ahead and hopefully we'll have time... Uh, to finish up uh, maybe North and South America uh, before October I don't know uh, it's it's gonna be rough we might have to we might have to um, might have to maybe do like a long episode for the Americas I'm not sure yet but um regardless we'll we'll get it planned out we'll get it completed but uh, we're getting pretty close here uh, I'm thinking Europe. Europe might be in another two episodes, maybe three, um, and then then we'll move to the Americas. But um, yeah, I hope you all have enjoyed this one. I sorry I didn't have too much specifics to talk about in terms of Eastern Europe. There are a number of quote unquote cultures uh, that are mentioned. However, they're all focused on one site there's only like one type site for each of these um and that means of course that they have this primary location and of course the land around it uh, is part of this there's a number of these in poland um there are a number in belarus a few along the baltic coasts uh, but there's not a lot of information on these places in english and there is a very big overlap in terms of what these people eat, how they lived. Um, but there are, of course, again, these small variations in certain tools, but not in others. Certain places might share a very similar type of hand axe, but then have a completely different type of um, um, spear or, you know, something like that just as a kind of a nebulous example um so there there's a lot of back and forth between these people there's definitely a level of commonality at least in like the past they had some common ancestor tradition um so but uh there's not a whole lot that we can really say you know definitively about these different sites in the east there's still a debate about whether or not they are should all be included together if this is one large culture with just some smaller variants or if they are indeed all different peoples completely 
Um, that's something that Eastern Europe, um, as we're you know as we're getting away from the Cold War, um, you know a lot of the Soviet stuff was focused on uh, all along the big rivers in the Soviet Union, places like the Volga and the Don, things like that. And they did a lot of great work out there, um, but. Uh, some of their more satellite states of the Soviets didn't quite get the type of attention. Uh, so they're kind of catching up as time has gone on with those places. Of course, um, you know, with current world events being what they are, uh, not always easy to, uh, to study in that region, you know, without having to worry about, uh, other things getting in the way. So, um, I'm sure that there will be more information coming out from this time period, um, but it was not an easy place to live. Uh, I know the Younger Dryas has ended, uh, but again, you have, while you have a more temperate uh, climate, a lot of the animals that you had been relying on for you know a couple of thousand years prior to that are disappearing. So you're having to change up your tactics to hunt different types of animals. You're probably not able to focus on improving your material condition too much. You're just making sure that you're surviving. Um, however, that period, of course, will change. They will, of course, begin to advance again. Um, Europe does not get um, ceramics in terms of pottery uh, until a little bit later. Of course, you know, we talked about the pre-pottery Neolithic. Uh, Europe is in the aceramic period a little bit later than the Middle East. Um, that is some technology that will come along a little bit later. Um, of course, they do have, or at least places in Europe, do have those uh, Venus figures that are ceramic. Uh, but these are very small comparatively, and they are never used um, kind of as a practical purpose, at least no discernible practical practical purpose um, that's something that comes along later and that is something that does appear to be transmitted directly from uh, the Middle East or, or Asia um, but yeah so uh, Eastern Europe I know I again I, I, I'll try to get some more sites there are a lot more sites later uh, in Eastern Europe or Northeastern Europe especially um, so I do hope you look forward to next season. And there are, there are more places, of course, in the West that we can talk about um, next time. Uh, so uh, please listen, enjoy. Uh, whichever platform you're listening to me on, uh, please like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, if you have any questions or feedback, please, please let me know. Uh, you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can direct message me on Twitter or X or whatever it is. Uh, and then, of course, you can comment on any of my YouTube videos. I'd be glad to answer any questions there. Um, and, yeah, if there's like a kind of a mythology or history type of book that you want me to maybe cover for October. Um, or fantasy, I should say, fantasy, sci-fi thing. Uh, please... Please give me a suggestion. Uh, I've only got one firm source right now. And I think October uh, this year we've got, uh, uh, I believe we have five Mondays in that month. So I do need I do need some ideas. So please don't hesitate to suggest one. And even if I don't do one this year, I might do one next or the year after. So 
please let me know. But thank you for joining me. I hope you have a good day and a good rest of your week. Thank you all. Goodbye.